You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, this week the New South Wales government rejected One Nation's transphobic education parental rights bill after a long campaign from the queer community. On the line we have historian and author Professor Noah Reisman. Noah, welcome to the program. G'day, James. Thanks for having me back. Always great to chat. Now, activists are called One Nation's Bill the most transphobic piece of legislation ever introduced into an Australian parliament. Just how transphobic was it? Ooh. Oh, well, it was very transphobic. <laughs> I can certainly agree with that. Was it the most ever introduced to parliament? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably was. Oh, uh, look, it might be on par with the recent Commonwealth bill that Senator Chandler is trying to introduce um, to limit trans women's participation in sport. But look, absolutely, I think that's not to say we haven't had transphobic laws in the past. We certainly have. I think the difference is over the last 30 years or so, we've seen a very gradual reform of laws to make it better for trans people, to increase trans people's rights, and that's not to say that we are fully there yet. We've got a ways to go. This would have been trying to take things backwards, and that we have not seen, uh, I would certainly say in recent memory, if at all, in terms of legislation. As a historian, I mean, where can we go in history to kind of, you know, basically put this on par with something, you know, like um, how would you contextualise it as a historian? I don't know, but look, what I might contextualise less so than the bill is the arguments surrounding the bill, um, in that the arguments that were being used by One Nation and by the opponents of trans people are very similar arguments to what have been used against gay and lesbian people for the last 40-some-odd years. So, you know, there's it's always this focus on children, and that dates back to the 1970s to the United States of all places, which probably shouldn't be surprising given the context, where you began to see movements for gay rights in the United States in the early 1970s on very small scales. In 1977, Anita Bryant, who at the time was famous for being the heiress to an orange juice um, fortune, that's not a joke, um, and a beauty queen, she launched a campaign that was called Save Our Children, and it was to repeal gay rights ordinances in uh, in a county in Florida. And it was via referenda, and it passed. It passed with with flying colors. This campaign, this using of children as a as a fear factor, as a motivation of this idea that, oh, they're trying to recruit their children, ooh, gays are all pedophiles who want your children, was used to repeal gay rights ordinances all across the United States. Um, the movie Milk, for those who haven't seen it, talks about this a bit because California was one of the only places that rejected this. This tactic of using children is repeated over and over again. In UK, the most famous example was Section 28, which was introduced by Thatcher in, I think, 1988, which was going to make it, literally Latham's bill was like Section 28 resurrected. It was, Section 28 was not allowing any promotion um, or discussion of homosexuality in local government, and it especially was about schools. And Section 28 was not repealed until 2003 in Scotland and 2005 in the UK. So we've seen these arguments about children and, oh, you know, they're after children, we need to protect children, blah, 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 used against gay and lesbians for the last 40 years. As we've won more rights for gay and lesbian people, and as there's been more acceptance, we've seen how the conservative forces have started targeting trans people as their punching bag, which is their new, their new scary uh, boogie person. Um, 
And it's the same tactic now being used. And this bill that Latham was trying to do was basically Section 28, but targeting trans people in New South Wales. It's scary, isn't it? Because it's obviously a winning formula for these conservatives. I use that with inverted, you know, commas. Well, but it is, but it isn't. It was. It absolutely was in the 70s and 80s, sadly. And, you know, I think in the 90s in Australia, if you, and actually I should say not necessarily in legislation, but the using children as the boogie person was certainly a tactic in Australia as well. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in, in the early 80s, there was um, a, a hoopla when um, a gay teacher, Greg Weir, in, in Queensland wasn't allowed to be registered as a teacher um, because, you know, might, might threaten children, blah, blah. It's not working now, though. At least in Australia, it's not working now. This bill failed. That's the important thing to remember because attitudes are changing. We've still got a ways to go, not pretending otherwise. We've got a ways to go. And also, LGB people, I think, learned some of the lessons of the marriage equality debate that we need to be louder um, speaking with our trans siblings and for their rights. So y- y- you're right. They're using the same arguments, but guess what? It didn't work this time. And I think that's what's the, 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 the sign of hope for me. And it's a real slapping down in lots of ways of the Prime Minister and his religious discrimination bill, isn't it? That uh, a Liberal government in, in New South Wales has rejected a transphobic bill that has some parallels with the kinds of bigotry that's, you know, contained in the religious discrimination bill. It's almost like Dominic Perrottet has given the Prime Minister the bird. Oh, yeah, well, that's one way of looking at it. And you know what? Perrottet himself came out against the religious discrimination bill and was very open about that too. So that's, there's your double bird given to, the, given to the Prime Minister. And it's interesting, isn't it, because the day that the uh, New South Wales government announced that they were rejecting this bill was the same day that they launched their, their comprehensive uh, LGBTIQ health strategy for the community. So it was all part of, I guess, a, an orchestrated media campaign and strategy. Look, it obviously was not coincidental, that's for sure. And I mean, I think it was in the news either yesterday or today about Alex Greenwich, the independent member for Sydney, now really pushing to get New South Wales to catch up with the other states on other areas of LGBTIQ rights, um, especially trans and intersex rights, but not exclusively. Um, Look, absolutely the timing was not coincidental of those two things the same day. That said, I don't know how much of a big media splash the New South Wales government was trying to make. I mean, I certainly saw the strategy through Facebook groups that I'm on and through LGBTIQ media. Did this reach mainstream media? Uh, It may have. It may not have. I don't know. Um, I guess that would be New South Wales media, but you and I are in Victoria, so hard to know. You mentioned what's happening in the United States and what has happened in the United States, and it does seem that One Nation's bill and also the Religious Discrimination Bill is, you know, an Australian version of or Australian versions of importations of legislation from the U.S. Yeah, look, I mean, their tactics, their arguments, all of it's imported from the U.S. It's really sad when I watch watch my homeland, what the hell is going on there, part of my friends, um, around this stuff, but... I think there's obviously different political systems here that have lent themselves to these sorts of bills not getting the same amount of support that they've gotten in the U.S. and therefore them falling, and I'm very grateful for that. I think the, the biggest the biggest three reasons I was actually thinking about this this morning preparing for this, this interview, number one, I think, is compulsory voting. Um, so in the United States, all they've got to do is get a bigger base turnout. These sorts of things are red meat to the conservative right wing, and it gets them to show up at the polls. Well, guess what? In Australia, your conservative right wing showing up to the polls. So is your left wing, and it's the middle ground that decide the elections. 
The other one is, I think, thank goodness we have independent electoral commissions in Australia. Because of that, we are not gerrymandered to the hilt, which means that there are actual competitive elections. So again, governments to win have to appeal to the center. Um, I think the other big difference is how we do pre-selections, which I, again, looking at New South Wales, they're in some bizarre territory that I don't really understand what's going on. But that said, in the U.S. where you have primaries, you've got people who, again, to to get even pre-selected, essentially, they've got to appeal to this base, which in the Republican Party is a very strong right-wing base. And what and it's this is one of the things that's red meat to them. So thank goodness for... So, I mean, yeah, they're importing one nation, the same tactics, the same arguments, but they don't land the same here because we we genuinely have a different political system. It's interesting you mentioned the pre-selections in New South Wales because, of course, the New South Wales of, you know, division of the Liberal Party is basically having a civil war that's going all the way to the uh, New South Wales Supreme Court in relation to pre-selections for some New South Wales seats. Of course, Dom Perrottet and Scott Morrison are on different factional sides of that debate. Once again, you have to wonder if, you know, the slapping down of the Prime Minister is kind of linked to that as well. Oh, look, it might be. I, to be honest, I couldn't say. I don't know enough about – I'm an independent. I'm not enrolled in any party. This is why I'm not. <laughs> well, it's not the only reason why, but it's one of the reasons why. But, yeah, from what I've read in the media, it obviously sounds similar to what you've read, James. So, yeah, it, it could be part of that. But to be honest, I don't think that that's in Parate's thinking. Um, I think some of this other big-picture stuff that, you know, maybe he's even looked at, a, at his mate Dan Andrews in Victoria and seen, hey, what do you know? LGBTIQ equality is actually – popular. We should try that. You mentioned the US, of course, uh, George W. Bush uh, ran plebiscites on the same day as the 2004 election in relation to to state voting rights, uh, or not voting rights, but in, in relation to same-sex marriage and basically yeah. slapping that down. So it is a, a strategy that they've used repeatedly. But what can you tell us about some of the anti-trans laws that are being passed by states in the US at the moment? Oh, it's been pretty sad to watch. I haven't, I, I, to be honest, I try, I'm careful not to watch it all too closely. You've got laws that are being passed in some states. Uh, the big targets are sport, um, which is not surprising. Um, we can talk about, it's a whole other, I don't know if we even have time, but historically sport has also been used as a way of sort of as a lightning rod to oppose trans rights, both in Australia and overseas. So a lot of these bills are about denying um trans girls especially, but, you know, they would apply to non-binary and to trans men as well, the right to compete in sport in their firm gender. Um, Some of these bills are about denying affirming health care to trans children and young people. Um, And it wasn't a law, but it was in Texas. I think this is the most frightening of them all, was when the governor and attorney general put out a statement saying that they would see anyone offering affirming care to trans children as a form of child abuse and said that they would be investigated. Um, Fortunately, a court has temporarily put a halt to that, but that stuff is really, really frightening. Um, I would say to give a glimmer of hope in the U.S., but this just goes to how divided the U.S. is. I mean, these are coming from deeply conservative Republican states. A few glimmers of hope in Utah, a Republican governor said he would veto a bill that was about the trans girls and sport thing because he just said this is not an issue and we shouldn't be, you shouldn't even be dealing with this. So that's one glimmer of hope. Another one, again, to my home state, Massachusetts, which is probably one of the most progressive states in the U.S., a few years ago, an initiative did go on the ballot that was going to limit trans people's rights. I'll be quite honest, I forgot what it was about, um, what it was specifically, whether it was about sport or if it was about 
um, affirming. I actually don't remember specifically, but I do remember the no vote won and won decisively. So there are parts of the United States where they're doing the right thing, but the country is bloody polarized. It, it's, and unfortunately, the anti-trans voices are getting very well, not getting, they're very loud. They're getting louder. Um, it's part of broader, seriously scary stuff going on in my homeland that I cannot help but draw comparisons to the 1920s and 30s in Germany. I, I don't like making that comparison, but I can't help but do it right now, and it frightens me. Absolutely. Of course, you are a historian. Uh, you are a professor of history. You have been undertaking incredibly uh, groundbreaking and extensive research with Australia's trans community. What can you tell us about where that's at? Actually, so timing's really good. Trans Day of Visibility is a week after next. Is it 31st of March? Is Yeah, week after next. Um, so uh, one thing that was published last year, and listeners, you can go read this for free online to, to learn a bit about Victoria's trans history, was um, I did author a report that Transgender Victoria published on the history of trans people in Victoria. It's on the... Transgender Victoria website, where you can download it for free, or if you want to order a hard copy um, and want to pay pay some money for that, they literally just put that on sale for hard copies on their website. And I've got a similar report, which is on the history of trans people in New South Wales, which is with graphic designers now, and fingers crossed that if we can get all of our ducks in order, we'll come out for Trans Day of Visibility, and will be published um, by both the Gender Center and ACON, which are both in Sydney. So again, it's about raising visibility about these long histories of trans and gender diverse people in New South Wales, in that context, in Victoria, in the other context. And the, the project is national, so there's other outputs still to come that will deal with the rest of the country. That sounded wrong, deal with the rest of the country, but include the rest of the country. So in your travels as a historian, um, looking at, at the history of the trans community in, in Australia, what, what jumped out to you the most? What was the most surprising thing you discovered? Oof, oh, my God. James with the stumping questions. Um, surprising uh, mm, the ongoing cycles of division slash debates within the trans community, but which tend to lead to renewal and pushes forward. And what what I'm thinking of now when you say that is, you know, obviously the 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 understandings of gender have changed in Australia and and everywhere over time. You know, and a lot of the terminology has changed to reflect that. But as there have been these changes, they didn't just happen overnight. There were there were serious debates going on within communities, and I think the one that stands out is in Sydney in the 1990s. So until the 1990s, you had this very medical model of understanding trans, where the idea was. And, and it almost always was about trans women, though it did apply to trans men as well. But it was almost always about you get referred to a psychiatrist, you exhibit wrong body discourse, which is this this notion that I was a woman trapped in a man's body. The psychiatrist, if they accept this, that you are truly trans, they then refer you to an endocrinologist, you get hormones, and then in a few years, you then get gender affirmation surgery, and you disappear quietly into the community, trying to blend in as, as cis, and that's the way you do it, the end. And a lot of trans people internalized and did accept this. A lot of others didn't. But in the 90s, you see trans activists, especially in Sydney, really challenging this and saying, no, gender is not just about the body. Being trans is not just about... Um, you know, these medical interventions and, and having to change your body. 
And in fact, they were espousing ideas of non-binary before the term non-binary existed. They were talking about gender being, you know, something that's not defined. And I don't know if they used the word fluid. I'd have to go back to my notes. But they were very much espousing these ideas. And this led to some serious clashes um, at the Gender Center in Sydney, some very vocal clashes uh, that sort of between this old model, which, which a very vocal group of trans people still espoused, and this, this more... Um, social constructivist model, which is the one that we tend to think about today. And these clashes came to a head and eventually um, at the annual general meeting where the the social constructivist group, Transgender Liberation Coalition, basically won the argument. And then sort of gradually that there was this sort of healing in the trans community, if you will. But then you see new arguments arising, say, 20 years later, where people are really challenged around by ideas of non-binary or challenged by ideas of, of um, divorcing from the body. And so you see like these, these debates, these discussions within the trans community just as much as they're happening outside it. But then again, you sort of see these sort of almost peacemaking periods after. So, yeah, I don't even know if that answered your question. It was just the first thing that came to my mind of something I find striking is there are cycles of disagreement and debate and and arguments, and then there's sort of renewal. And almost it's almost to go back to that Hegel, there's like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And it's really interesting to see how those cycles have played out over questions about gender and transness, both within the trans community and outside it. I mean, you've, you've built up some incredible relationships with, uh, with trans people, with trans elders uh, all around the country. People have shared their stories with you so intimately. What can you tell us about some of the stories that, that you've been told? Oh, my God. Look, you're, first off, such generous people. Stories, all of them resilient galore. I mean, especially trans elders who transitioned in the 1980s or earlier. I mean, to be able to do that, and to be visible is just amazing um, and remarkable. And we've seen the power of visibility, and these were people being visible when it was dangerous to do so. It's not to say it's safe now, but when it was even super dangerous to do so. I mean, Roberta Perkins, bless her soul, rest in peace, like, my God, the, the work she was doing in the 1980s, setting up Tiresias House, which is the, the first sort of the refu- a refuge in Sydney for trans homeless people, which is now, it's over time morphed into what's now the Gender Center and does a lot more. But, I mean, I was going through some of Roberta's papers in the State Library of New South Wales in the 19, I'm uh, sorry, in December and January, but which covers a lot of the research she was doing with sex workers in the 1980s. And it just, the way that Roberta just went out there and just, you know, was interviewing people and just recording their stories. And because of Roberta, we have information, firsthand accounts from the 1980s we might not otherwise have. She did oral history interviews with some trans people who were, who were dying of AIDS in the 1980s. These, from what I've seen, are the only stories that have been recorded of trans people living with HIV and dying of AIDS in the 1980s. And it's just remarkable to be able to read this stuff. And, and yeah, just to go back to your, your big picture comment there, the generosity of the people who've been willing to share this stuff with me has been amazing. And I'm so, I'm constantly thanking them. I can't thank them enough for how, how generous they have all been and continue to be. I mean, it must have been a really life-changing experience for you, developing those relationships and hearing those stories and kind of being entrusted to be the, you know, custodian of them in some ways in terms of like putting them in books and research. 
Oh, look, constantly. And I would say that report on Victoria I mentioned before and the New South Wales ones I'm finishing now, I've been going back to the people when I write about them to make sure they're comfortable with what we've written. And I'll be very honest, there was one thing I wrote in draft that hasn't come out yet about that very debate I was just telling you about at the Gender Center in 96, where I did accidentally misrepresent someone's story and like literally had a phone call from her like freaking out over what I wrote. And I was like, all right, let's fix this. An hour fixing it, her correcting me, making sure I got it right, sending it back to her, making sure she was comfortable with it, and she was. And another person yesterday on the phone for a half hour rewriting a few details to make sure that I got something right, to make sure that we are representing this how you want this represented. It can take time. It can be a lot of work, but it's it's the ethics of it. I have to do it. And I don't say that in a bad way. Like it's really, really important because these people have been so generous to share their stories that when representing them, it's vital to get it how they want it, to get it right. Absolutely. Noah Reisman, Professor Noah Reisman, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, James. Professor Noah Reisman there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Cat Power. Oh, God. 
I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. One, two, three.
from their new EP, 444, and that was Lungs featuring Zephy Ress. And uh, we're very blessed to have Kitty from Night Fruit on the line. Hello, Kitty. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to chat with you, Kitty, and I love Lungs. Tell us all about the track. What's it about? Um, thank you so much for playing it and so nice to be here again. Love your show. Um, so yeah, Lungs, uh, it was a bit of a step away from, I guess, what we'd usually been influenced by in terms of like the themes for the lyrics. Um, it was very much born from lockdown and feeling, I guess, disconnected from community and from each other. And it's kind of a, a philosophical exploration of that need to connect and that desire to be a part of something bigger and that kind of yearning for connection, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it has, like, a lonely element, but I think uh, ultimately it's, like, positive kind of reflection on, like, how important connections are, I guess. Yeah. And another great collaboration between yourself and Prani Harrison. You both comprise Night Fruit and Zephy yeah. Ress as well. Uh, what can you tell us about them? Um, so Zephyrus is our friend Adam, and this is um, their first time, I guess, um, yeah, but getting like releasing music, um, but they've done a lot of amazing production their own on their own, which um, I can't wait for the world to hear. Um, and yeah, we were just we yeah have a close friendship with them, and I'm always you know just talking about what a great singer they are. And we played them this track, and they loved it, and they were like, "That's my favorite Nightbreed song," like really big fan. And we were like, "Oh, jump on!" Um, so yeah, a lot of our collaborations kind of start as just almost like completely finished songs that me and Prani make and then kind of at the end we're like wait wouldn't this be even better if we got you know so and so on um so yeah that was the case with songs and so happy that it worked out how it did that's what I love about you guys your community connections and collaborations and your nurturing of other artists um you know it's kind of like the night fruit philosophy isn't it yes Absolutely, yeah. We love collaboration. I think before we even like became a band, just looking at how the Melbourne music scene kind of operated and seeing our favourite artists collaborate with each other was so inspiring to kind of watch. And yeah, it's definitely something that we just love doing and want to do more of. Yeah. And it must be so exciting because you guys are very much a part of the emerging and growing and and just, you know, kind of avant-garde, you know, queer music scene that we have here in Melbourne. So your timing in terms of being part of the community and nurturing it is quite exquisite. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like in, um, in lockdown we made so many connections just online, which was really cool because um, obviously, you know, couldn't go to gigs, couldn't really find new music. But then I think this kind of, yeah, avant-garde, as you said, um, community has really been starting to emerge and make ties online with people who haven't even necessarily performed at all. They're just putting stuff out on SoundCloud, et cetera. Um, so that's been really cool to kind of, yeah, grow those connections as opposed to just in the live music scene. Um, yeah, silver lining for the lockdown experience, I guess. <laughs> so now that we're out of lockdown, can we expect some live performances from Nightfruit? Yes. You absolutely can. Um, we've got our EP releases coming up on April 21st, and that's at Miscellanea um, with Mohini and Pixie Shift. So we're very excited for that. And then, yeah, we've got a couple couple of things lined up throughout the year. So if you follow us on socials, you'll definitely um, be kept up to date. But, yeah, we're so excited to perform more. So tell us about the EP 444. Like, tell us about the tracks on it and just the whole process you went through to make it. Yeah, um, so all of the songs were written in lockdown, so in the last two years. 
Um, and yeah, I think in a lot of ways they're very informed by that, even if they're not explicitly about that. Um, the first track, Obsessive, is very much a reflection on uh, mental health and like the damaging narratives that we sometimes tell ourselves that are fueled by like shame and self-doubt. Um, and I guess the purpose of the track is to actually say like, fuck you to those narratives and kind of push back against them and yeah, kind of self-empower oneself to kind of get rid of the, like the shame and the shit that we're made to kind of put up with. Um, so yeah, it's very, yeah, cathartic, I guess. And then lungs, very much that like tempo change, very moody, that like philosophical exploration of the connection, um, and then moving into Concrete, which is another co- collaboration with M from Light Transmission. Um, and that's very much a celebration of our friendships, like sort of dated back, you know, the last 10 years or so and kind of reflecting on like just being ratbag teenagers in Melbourne and, you know, going around to gigs and drinking in the street, et cetera. <laughs> um, but, yeah, very much like a, a love letter to those form- former friendships and formative friendships, I mean. Um, yeah, and the guitar, M's guitar on that really just adds this amazing layer to it, which we love. And then 4AM, the final track, is very much our, like, dance floor banger. Um, it's sort of like a horny celebration of, like, queer love. Um, the inspiration from it really came from this idea of, like... Um, I don't know, yeah, just wanting wanting explicit queerness in, like, pop culture um, and being kind of, like, disenchanted by, like, the implicit, like, queer-coded kind of stuff that um, kind of oversaturates the mainstream, I guess, and we wanted to just do something really, like, in-your-face and horny and fun. Um, yeah. And so the first track, Obsessive, was mixed by um, Toya and then the the rest of them were mixed by Asha Elazari, who goes by R. Hunter, and they both did amazing jobs. It's so interesting, like you were describing the influences and what all those different songs were about, and they were all really different, but the, the one yeah. theme that ran through all of them was queer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. The backbone of it all. <laughs> and the punk influence as well. There's a bit of, you know, pseudo-punk happening there. Yes. Yeah, well, Prani's um, background, like, before Nightfruit was in a punk band, and, yeah, definitely our teenage years listening to punk was, like, a huge time for both of us, so, yeah. So tell us about how you guys write songs. Like, do you both write the lyrics? Like, how do you work technically? Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so it's changed a bit over the years. When we first started, we would really, like, sit down together and produce, like, every part of the song together and write the lyrics together um, which I think was a great way to start because we were both really like learning how to produce from scratch. Um, whereas now, if that, now that that process is a bit more streamlined, we tend to start a song and push it as far as we can on our own so individually. And then, like, say, if I'm working on a track, I'll get it as far as I can go, and then I'll just get kind of stuck, and I'll be like, okay, this is I've done all I can. Like, I'll send it to Pani and vice versa, and then the offer will kind of take it to the next level. Um, and then lyrically a bit of a mix. Some of the songs, um, just one of us wrote all of the lyrics, like Lungs was really Prani's baby lyrically. And she wrote that whole melody and the lyrics, which are like beautiful. Um, other times we might do like a verse each and just kind of workshop it. Um, 
yeah, so it kind of varies on the on the lyric front, but often we'll kind of decide on a vibe together. Like we want this song to be about X, Y, Z, and then we'll kind of workshop the lyrics from there. And how does yeah. it work instrumentally? Do you do a combination of playing instruments and computer synth? Like, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, so a bit of a combo. It's mostly um, like electronic production, so using like synths and Ableton to kind of make the make up the track. And then Prani also plays guitar, and when we play live, I play um, some of the synth lines live. Um, and with our collaborations, we've got, yeah, M playing guitar on concrete. Um, yeah, so a bit of a mix, yeah. And you're very much in control of your work as well. I love your independence. Like, you know, there's no label dictating to you. You know, you don't have this, you know, huge entourage that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> telling you how you should be to make money. You know, you're like, you're very much yeah. your own bosses. I love that. Yeah, totally. Yes, yeah. There's a real something really nice about that independence for sure. So, what else is in the pipeline for you guys? I mean, can, can I can envisage a tour happening? Oh, would love that. Yes, um, we definitely want to gig more. I'm actually living in Newcastle at the moment, so we want to get Prani up here to do a newie gig and maybe Sydney along the way. Um, aside from that, we've got a couple of film clips that we're working on. One is going to be a 2D animation, which we're very excited for. And, um, yeah, we've got a real backlog of tracks that we're still working on as well. So we want to do an album next, so something a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about when the album's coming. It sounds like that's yeah. probably – how long do you reckon? Oh, I don't know. Maybe next year, mid-next year, we're thinking, for the album. Yeah. It's Fantastic. Well. <laughs> I just love your work. Now, tell us a bit more oh. about these music videos. Um, so one's going to be, yeah, 2D animation. So that's going to be for 4am, our horny club banger. Um, I had the pleasure of making a short animated film a couple of years, or last year, um, with CC screens. And that was really fun. And my first sort of foray into 2D animation and loved it. So we want to do, yeah, an animated film clip for 4am, which I think is going to be really cool. Uh, and then the other one will be, like live action, so starring us, and that's going to be for a new song that you haven't heard yet, but that'll be on the next album. Um, and, yeah, hopefully that'll be later this year, all wrapped up and released. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the EP, 444. I love Lungs. I love your collaborations. Uh, bummer you're in Newcastle, but we hope to see you in Melbourne <laughs> soon on stage. Yes, well, I'll be down April 21st, so catch me there. <laughs> awesome stuff. Kitty from Nightfruit, congratulations to you and Prani Harrison. Thanks heaps Thank for joining you. me on 3CR. Thank you so much. Have Cheers. a great one. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Facebook.